Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Verses that we know well. The three angels' message, this is the first, and it says in verse 6 of chapter 14 of Revelation, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. To those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Folks, we have an eternal gospel, not a new gospel. And our job is to take this message to the ends of the earth. But I believe some are tampering with this everlasting gospel. Verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There is a false message. And they are making the nations drink the wine of their adulteries, the doctrines of devils. Now, friends, justification is something God does for me by grace. Sanctification is something God does in me by grace. And they are inseparable. You cannot truly have one without the other. Like when I go into my shower and I have a hot and a cold. And I have to regulate it and get everything just right. But when it comes out of the spout, there's no more separating. It's done. They're inseparable. And this idea of justification and sanctification being inseparable, we see throughout Scripture. And somehow, I don't understand why it's so hard in the Bible to understand this, but in every relationship, it seems so easy. If I love my spouse, I will treat her accordingly. If I don't, I'll treat her differently, won't I? Oh, but honey, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. As I mistreat her, stay out late, do my own thing, how long will she continue to believe me? So this idea of justification, sanctification, seen throughout the Bible. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's the justification. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the sanctification. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, justification, and will heal their land, sanctification. We find it also in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors justification, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, sanctification. They are inseparable, and they are both given by God, by His grace. Only His grace can save us, and only His grace can change us. But popular theology says, only believe that Jesus saves you. That's all you need to do. You remember when Christ was asked, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? Do this and you shall live. 
Sister White reminds us that looking to Calvary will not quiet the soul into non-performance of duty, she writes, but will create faith that will work. There is a work for us to do. But the Lord can do nothing toward recovering my fallen nature until I am fully convicted of my own weakness and I am stripped of all self-sufficiency and yield myself to the control of God. Then and only then can I receive the gift that he longs to bestow. My part is to put my will on the side of Christ. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You have your Bibles out. Turn with me also to Matthew, chapter 22, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and we're going to very quickly look at a parable here, the parable of the wedding feast. Matthew, chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, we read, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like. We hear that again and again on the lips of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, who we know to be Jesus, who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servant to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Here we read a parable in which Jesus speaks prophetically. The king's invitation is the gospel invitation. So after the crucifixion, the gospel first goes to the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. Yet the king's authority, Jesus' authority, is despised. God's peculiar people rejected the gospel. Brought to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we read verse 6. He sends out other servants that he might invite others. And in verse 6 it says, And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Some were so exasperated by the offer of salvation, they turned on the bearers of the message. And we see great persecution and death of Stephen and James and many others. So the king in this parable pronounces judgment on the people and their city. And so we see the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of a nation. And so the final call to the feast represents giving the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 8, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore... Go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The Gentiles are now invited to come. And here's where I want to focus our attention this morning, because even still, we have mixed company. The guests were those who professed to serve God, but the fact remains. Some were there to honor the king, However, others came to share the provisions of the feast, but had no desire to honor the king. Sure, I'll claim him as my savior, but certainly not as my Lord. I actually prefer my garments, thank you very much. They they suit me. They're a little more comfortable. They're more trendy in accordance with the standards of the world. So no thank you, you can keep your garment. 
But here comes the punch in the story. The king starts to mingle with his guests. And as he does so, the real character of all is revealed. We call this the investigative judgment. For the hour of his judgment has come. Since 1844, the lives of his professed followers have been in review. The decision must be made prior to his second coming. Revelation 22 tells us to give every man according as his works shall be. His reward will be with him. He has to decide before he comes. And so the king is making his way through the people at the party, knowing that every guest was provided with a wedding garment. The garment was a gift from the king, and by wearing this garment, the guest showed respect for the giver of the feast. Yet one man was clothed in common dress. The garment provided at great cost to the king. He is disdained to wear. And so sadly we read in verse 12, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He's self-condemned. The wedding garment, pure spotless character, which Christ's true followers will possess, is the righteousness of Christ, his own unblemished character that through faith is imparted to all who receive him as their personal Savior. Now, don't misunderstand. Never can we wear the garment of our own devising. Never can we rely on our own works to cover our sins. Never can I alone in my humanness make myself acceptable before a holy God. We know that this garment does not have one thread of human devising. Nothing and no one can replace the pure garment of Jesus Christ. It is purely and completely Christ's perfect character that he offers to impart to you and me. All our righteousness is like filthy rags, it says in Isaiah 64. So wait a minute, now I'm starting to really get confused. That means I simply believe, right? Justification only, not sanctification. My works play no part in salvation, right? Now hold on, because I believe sin is rebellion against God. Capital S-I-N in the heart produces lowercase sins in the life. Is it true? So how can I accept his robe of righteousness while in a state of rebellion to him? I can't do it. Now, the opposite of rebellion is submission. So to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness means we submit ourselves to Christ. Our heart is united with his heart. Our will is united with his will. Our mind becomes one with his mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. Justification is something God does for me by grace. Sanctification is something God does in me by grace, and they are inseparable. The reality is, just like that young man in the red badge of courage, our faith, our characters are revealed by what we do. 
Our works show whether our faith or our love is genuine. Actions do speak louder than words. If I love my wife, my actions have no other choice than to reveal that. And if I love my Lord, my actions have no other choice than to reveal that. Because sin, capital S-I-N, in the heart produces lowercase sins in my life. That's the outflow every time. But Christ's righteousness in my heart will produce righteous acts, good works. It's not enough to believe Jesus is not an imposter. It's not enough to believe the theory of truth. Even the demons do that. It's not enough to make profession of faith in Christ to be added to the church books. 1 John 2, verse 3 reminds us, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. I know if I have come to know him, if I obey his commands. And let me tell you, I'll know about me long before you do, if I'm paying attention. When Christ resides in the heart, it cannot help but produce works of righteousness. By your fruits, you will know them. So let me ask you a question. If God's law did not matter, was not important, wouldn't God have just changed it? Done away with it altogether? And if the law could have been changed or set aside, then Christ need not have died. But instead, we see that by his life on earth, he honored the law of God. And by his death, he established it. He upheld it. And Satan comes along and he claims it's impossible for man to obey God's commandments. It's impossible to overcome. And in our own strength, that's 100% true. But through Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Amen? Christ came in the form of humanity. And by his perfect obedience, he proved that humanity and divinity combined can obey every one of God's precepts. Jesus came to our world not to reveal what God could do, but what man could do through faith in God's power. So when our friends, when a soul receives Christ, he receives power to live the life of Christ. Romans 8, verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's a powerful spirit, if the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. The same God who created in the beginning can recreate out of the nothingness, out of the dust of your life, out of the impure thoughts in your mind, out of the tendencies of your heart, he can take that mud and clay and mold it and shape it and recreate in you a new heart. Christ in me is my hope of glory. Yet Revelation speaks of a false theology that will separate the two. Turn with me one more time to Revelation chapter 17. 
Revelation chapter 17, the first two verses we're going to look at. To start off, Revelation verse, chapter 17, verse 1. There's a lot here and we're not going to unpack, but we're looking for a few simple things. Chapter 17, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is the impure church who sits on many people. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication, her false doctrine. And then verse 4, the woman, notice how she's dressed, was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and so on. Did you catch the two colors? She's adorned in purple, which in scripture we find as a symbol of royalty. Judges 8.26 speaks of the purple robes that the kings wore. And she's also dressed in scarlet, the color of blood. That in Scripture represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. And if we look back into the Old Testament in the sanctuary, we have lots of references to red and to purple, but there's another color, blue. In fact, 34 times we see all three colors listed together in Scripture, largely talking about the sanctuary. Old Testament sanctuary. So if red represents the blood of Christ or justification and purple represents royalty or glorification, what does blue represent? Numbers 15. Chapter 15, beginning verse 37. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments through their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the what? Commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry. Some of your versions may say, so you will not prostitute yourselves. Weren't we just reading about the prostitute in Revelation? So you will not prostitute yourselves and remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Blue in Scripture represents the Ten Commandments. In fact, I believe it can be shown that the Ten Commandments were made out of a sapphire stone, which is blue, just as God's throne room is made of sapphire. God's law is the foundation of his character. And so we have this beautiful picture portrayed for us here. I want you to sew this blue cord all the way around in the tassels so that all of your steps may be within the law of God. Isn't that neat? So you will be reminded that you will not prostitute yourselves. Now, have any of the children here ever played with mixing of colors? What happens when you mix red and blue together? You get purple. Yet through imagery, we have a false system of worship spoken of in Revelation 17 that is claiming that all you need is the blood of Christ in order to be considered royalty. You only need the marriage certificate. Yet red and red 
makes more red. It is the mixture, the inseparable mixture of red and blue that makes purple. Red and blue, grace and law, grace and works, justification and sanctification, this mix that is so inseparable and allows us to be called royalty, to be glorified as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And the third angel of Revelation 14 tells us, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The mix of human and divine. The mix of surrendering my will and God's grace. The mix of accepting Jesus as Lord and Master. Both are necessary. You never can truly have one without the other. Now don't get me wrong. All of it is by grace. Nothing is what I do. The good works in me is only by God's grace, period. But as I strive to do my part, God comes alongside and by his grace. So let's get practical. Because I'm a sinner, I don't know about you, And that's exactly where the devil wants to leave you and me. He wants to discourage you and I in our humanness of our shortcomings to become focused on all of that, to play video in our minds to say we can't do it, we can't overcome, we've tried before. But the more we focus on self, the less strength we will have to overcome temptations. You cannot overcome by focusing on your wrongs. You overcome by focusing on Jesus. Because Satan trembles and flees before the weakest soul who finds refuge in the mighty name of Jesus. You overcome by focusing on Jesus. Through prayer, Psalms 142 verse 5, David says, I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You overcome by focusing on Jesus. You claim Bible promises like Psalms 119.11, I have hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You overcome by focusing on Jesus. Placing your will on the side of Christ. And here's a tremendous quote. I have a few of these in my Bible. I would encourage you to take note of this one. If you're one of these that likes to look things up later, this is in one of Selected Messages, Volume 1 of Selected Messages, page 382. Beautiful quote. When it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man or woman's best service and makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. Did you catch that? When it's in my heart to obey God, when I put forth all of my efforts to this end, Jesus accepts this effort as my best service and he makes up for the deficiency with his divine merit. I don't know about you, but I say amen to that. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So what you need is not more willpower, but more of Christ's power. Your job is to yield up your will to the will of Jesus. He will do for you that which is not possible for you to do for yourself. I don't know about you, but I want to wear Christ's robe of righteousness offered by the king at great cost. I want to surrender my habits and my human character for the character of Christ to be clothed with the robe of heaven. I want to be justified by God's grace. And I want to be sanctified by God's grace. That one day I may be glorified by God's grace. Jack Blanco in his clear word concludes the parable in Matthew 22 this way, verse 14. He says, that's how it is with the king of heaven. Everyone is given a royal invitation to come to the wedding to celebrate with the king and his son. Many will be invited, but few will come wearing the character of God. By God's grace, I long to come wearing the character of God. Not that I have done it, but Christ working in me that I may be crucified each and every day with Christ, that I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. Lord, by your grace, you long to justify us, to sanctify us, that we may have the hope of glory when you come. And this morning, we make ourselves fully available to you. We submit our wills to you, so you can do in us what we could never do for ourselves. Please, Lord, change us. Transform us. Create the desire within us to live for you and you alone because we long to honor you as our King and wear your robe of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.